From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. God is about relationship. Relationships in the very heart of the Christian God, where we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about that dynamic dance of love and relationship. And that's what we're called to model in our lives, in our relationships with ourselves and with others, and indeed with our most significant relationships with the people we hold beloved and who we hope hold us beloved. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the program Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She's a familiar voice on BBC Radio and is a regular contributor to Thought for the Day, Pause for Thought, and frequently presents on the BBC Daily Service. A priest in the Church of England, Dr. Mann serves as Archdeacon of Salford and Bolton and is a member of the Church's Theological Advisory Board. She has a new book of poetry coming out called Eleanor Among the Saints, but today we're talking about another book that has been recently released, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. Rachel Mann, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, it is an absolute joy to be with you. Well, I am so delighted to get into this book. And I will say at the outset for my listeners and for you, I came into reading your book knowing next to nothing about Jane Austen. I am not, as the term goes, a Janeite. However, my wife is. And in the process of reading your book and preparing for this conversation, it gave me occasion to have many rich conversations with my wife, Kira, about what you were drawing from the various works with which she is very familiar and I am becoming familiar. So I want to thank you, first of all, for improving the quality of my marriage. Um, But I also want to make sure that my listeners understand that this is not simply a biography of Jane Austen, but rather in the conceit of this book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, you have used the works of Jane Austen to begin to draw us into a Christian practice called Lent. And that's where I'd like to begin our conversation today. You have a passage from early in your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, that sort of begins to set the stage from us. And I've asked you, if you would, to read that for us. Thanks, David. In our context, most of us set off on relationships, marriages, friendships, and life with the very best motives and intentions. Love, which is so much more than a romantic notion, is about growing into the likeness of Christ. It is an action and a work of will and a way of being in the world rather than an emotion. Even the most wonderful marriages, partnerships and relationships can resolve themselves into transactions driven by selfishness and exploitation. Transaction can be difficult to guard against. Lent offers an opportunity to reappraise our assumptions and hopes about our relationships 
As we set off on this Lenten pilgrimage, we have opportunities to ask key questions about our relationship with God, with self, and with those whom we love. How do we reorientate our relationships so that they become ever more life-giving? When is it time to begin again? And crucially, how can Christ set us free to be more fully ourselves within our relationships? Ultimately, what is the deep truth we wish to see universally acknowledged in our society today? And that is our guest, Rachel Mann, reading from her recent book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. Thank you for reading that passage because I think it gives us so many pieces to begin to arrange on the board. I think, first of all, you know, the listener base for this program are people who are deeply committed in faith and people who are just exploring faith and people who simply skidded by it on the radio dial. So I think the place that we should start is when we, within the Christian traditions, talk about Lent, what are the very basics of what we mean by that? What does that term signify in its most basic context? I mean, in its most basic context, it signifies six weeks, 40 days, opportunity to reorientate our lives back towards Christ, to, dare I say it, repent, to turn around, to go into a place of penance for our sin. So it's an opportunity in that period running up to Holy Week and Easter to begin again and come back to the very basics of our faith and what makes us Christian. What I really love about what you've given us in the passage that I asked you to read is you've begun to bring complexity to that very basic definition of Lent that you've offered us just now. Because I think when most people think about Lent, they think about self-denial and asceticism. But right out of the gate, you are connecting Lent with love. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about why that connection was so important to say. What is it about Lent that can help us understand love better? Well, I think you're right. Just to go back a second and say, David, I think you're right that so much of our understandings, our default settings around Lent is, oh, let's deny ourselves stuff. Let's try to sort of dial down on the indulgence. And I do not doubt the importance of that. But hey, at the heart of the Christian vocation for me is the fullness of life. It's about life lived in all its riches. And underneath that, the kind of subtext of all of that is that we are made in and for love, that the world is gift, that God doesn't create for the sake of punishment or to put people to the test, which is put their feet in the fire to burn them. God makes this offering of profound love, and we are invited in response to worship and praise and pray. And that is love itself. It's all about, it's the very breath of our being. So if it's not about love, then it actually just becomes a kind of grim transaction or mechanism. God is about relationship. Relationships in the very heart of the Christian God 
when we talk about Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we're talking about that dynamic dance of love and relationship. And that's what we're called to model in our lives, in our relationships with ourselves and with others, and indeed with our most significant relationships with the people we hold beloved and who we hope hold us beloved too. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Mann about her most recent book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. I want to stay with this because in both the paragraph that I asked you to read and just now in your remarks, you talked about transactions. And as I was listening to you read the passage and as I'm talking to you now, the words of another poet come to mind. In his great Christmas oratorio for the time being, W.H. Auden writes there at the end that in the Christmas moment, everything becomes a you and nothing is an it. And I hear in that the spirit of what you're grasping for here when you say that Lent and the very relational nature of God is anti-transactional. I want to really put the question to you because I think for many people, they think if I'm simply ascetic enough, if I give up enough, then God will deem me worthy to enter the Easter season. God will reward me for what I have given away, thrown away, said I don't need. And you're saying if you think about Lent or if you think about any interaction with God in this particular way, you're missing the point. But I've just rephrased what you've said, and I want to make sure I've got it right. And if I've got it wrong, please correct me. How would you say it differently? I think you've, you've captured the essence of the matter. I mean, what I want to draw out in what you've said, David, is the extent to which it is a marker of the kind of society in which we live. And gosh, we all swim in this society, Dave. You know, we can't, there's no outside of, for those of us who live in nations like the US or the UK, but there's no real outside of the capitalist neoliberal reality of cost-benefit analysis and transaction. But it's also predicated on a on a kind of individualism that's very late. It's a very late development in culture. And so when we talk about, well, if only I'm ascetic enough, if only I deny myself enough, if only I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll be worthy. Then the focus becomes on the I, on the individual. And we are all made in community first, in relationship first. And don't get me wrong, I'm not then therefore trying to fetishize just the wonders of community because... Let's be clear, you know, I speak as um, you know, member of the LGBT community and as a trans woman in particular, and I know how costly it has been for me to break free of that community narrative that says, no, Rachel, you're not that person and you cannot be that person. We need to have space for persons and individuals, but nor should we, as I think our society tends to do, it all becomes about me and mine, and I. And part of the power of the divine narrative offered to us in Jesus Christ is that we are born into relationship. We are made in relationship. We're born in vulnerability. And, and, you know, we're made in vulnerability. I know I'm talking very in a very sort of Christmas mode here, but don't get me wrong. You know, Christmas, Lent, Easter, it's all part of one dynamic of an invitation into gifted relationship. 
What I really like about your introduction of the idea of narrative here and in disclosing to us a little bit of your own journey, and thank you for trusting us with these facts about yourself and who you understand yourself to be. If I understand this reorientation correctly that you're talking about in Lent, you mentioned all these narratives that were given by our society, neoliberalism and how we fit as cogs into the machine. Am I hearing you correctly that Lent is an opportunity to give those up for a season and remember who we name ourselves to be and who those who love us most dearly understand us to be in our self-naming? When I say it that way, does it sound right? I, I love that. I mean, I love that idea of of giving up those narratives which are so insistent and so determined. And I'm going to be bolder and maybe braver and want to take further risk. I mean, sometimes we need to give up the God who does not believe in us or the God in whom we believe who actually is toxic for us. You know, there are, I mean, I speak again, and I'm not sure if I am making myself vulnerable here, but because this is just part of my very public narrative, but I am someone who I was formed in a charismatic evangelical setting and a British version of that, which is perhaps slightly different maybe to a sort of Southern Baptist version of it. But I was formed as a Christian in that that context. And I'm very clear about this. The God who I encountered in that space cherished me and delighted in me as a trans person. However, I also, through my experience of, I then became ill and disabled, I had to learn to give up on the God who was actually it's a very toxic version of God that was all about, well, if you are a good Christian, you know, if you're a good evangelical, if you're a good charismatic, then somehow you will only be blessed with more, you know, that there will be just abundance. And I discovered a God behind that who's much more real, who meets me in the facts, because I believe God is in the facts as well as in the promise. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She's a familiar voice on BBC Radio and is a regular contributor to the program's Thought for the Day, Pause for Thought, and frequently presents on the daily service. She's a priest in the Church of England, and she serves as Archdeacon of Salford and Bolton as a member of the Church's Theological Advisory Board. Today, we're talking about her recent book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than a decade's worth of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure.
We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She is a familiar voice on BBC Radio and is a regular contributor to the program's Thought for the Day, Pause for Thought, and frequently presents on the daily service. She's a priest in the Church of England, and she serves as an archdeacon of Salford and Bolton and as a member of the Church's Theological Advisory Board. Dr. Mann is a poet, and she has a book of poetry out recently called Eleanor Among the Saints. Today we're talking about another recent book that she she has published called A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. Well, in the first part of our program, we were setting the stage talking about Lent as a Christian practice. And in the process, we we reoriented the idea of Lent as a kind of transactional, giving things up so that God will like us. And we've we recentered the idea of love and relationship, both with those that are immediately in our life, those in our community, but also our relationships with God. Now I want to make this even more complex and bring in a different relationship that you have, a literary relationship, and that's with the author Jane Austen. And you make the point in your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, that you are not a Janeite. You're not an expert on Jane Austen. And in fact, perhaps this is where we should begin. When you first encountered Jane Austen when you were in school, you didn't have a positive reaction. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, well, indeed, I actually, the opening line of this book is, I first met Jane Austen in September 1986. I'm ashamed to admit I didn't much like her. And we've got to be honest here, David, I, as someone who was, well, as we say in the UK, in sixth form, I guess, as you might say in the UK, in my sort of junior year of high school, I had this opportunity to study English literature. I had teachers saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You throw your life away. You're going to just ruin your career. Become a scientist. And I was quite a capable scientist. But don't get into literature. You know, but I loved literature. And then the very first book we were given was Emma by Jane Austen. And 50 pages in, I thought, this is awful. This is just a bunch of, as we say in the UK, posh people upper class, wealthy, privileged people talking about their horses and going to balls and how much money they've got and who they're going to have an advantageous marriage with. And I was ready to give up. But curiously, David, because I stuck with it, I had a really great literature teacher and he said, just stick with it because this is sparklingly funny. And I ground my way through Emma the first time through. And I didn't really see much going on, but I thought it's okay. And then I read it again. And it came alive because suddenly I was encountering these layers of irony, all of this stuff that I thought, oh, this is just flimsy. It was Jane constantly winking at her readers to say, you get it, don't you? You get it. You realize that every time that Emma is saying that she's, you know, handsome, clever and rich and is so privileged, that this is just her brittle self-image. And I'm going to spend 300 pages showing you just how deluded she is, but also how lovable she is. So 
gosh, yeah, what an ex- I've rambled on there a bit. Well, what an extraordinary encounter with Jane at 16. Well, and one of the things that became very apparent for me in reading your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, is that there's the Jane Austen on the page, and then there's the Jane Austen in her historical context, where she, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, where she's referencing things sometimes thousands of miles away that that are socially present in the rooms she's talking about, but invisible. And if I've got that right, I'd love to hear more about that. But if I've got it wrong, please say it in a way that's clearer. Gosh, David, I mean, you've lasered in on just one of the extraordinary things about Austin's writing. So there you are. You, as I said, you have at one level these sort of drawing room comedies that seem to be all about the marriage plot. And then, and very particularly in one novel, but it's contained in all of them, I think. But in one novel, Mansfield Park, you have her offering a critique of slavery. But at that point, you know, when it's set, slavery had officially, the slave trade in 1807 had officially been banned in the British Empire, but it carried on until 1836, I think, 1834 30 to 36. and. We have a central character in that, the owner of Mansfield Park, who goes over to Antigua to look at the plantations. And you realise that this whole world is being sustained by slavery. And here's the clever stuff. Here's the clever stuff, David. Some of the characters' names are references to notorious slavers. So the bad characters have often got a reference to a slaver. Now, that, that is very, as we w- would say, allusive. There's, she's alluding to it. But if you have eyes to see, and again, there's that sort of Christian thing, those who've got eyes to see, ears to listen, you spot this subtext. And what, you re- what it reveals is that Jane Austen is no simple writer of Mill, well, as we in the UK, we call them Mills and Boom, but I don't know what you'd say in the US, but these sort of romances for aimed at a very particular market. This is social critique commentary. It's extraordinary. What I really appreciate about this and what you did in your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, is you're bringing us into, I think, concretely what we were talking about theoretically with Lent in the first part of the conversation, because there is a kind of commercial way to read Jane Austen. She fits in a genre. And you just, you, you said Mills and Boot or romance novels. And so there, there's a very sort of surface reading. But you have called us to have a reorientation of our relationship to Jane Austen and to understand more deeply the relationships that Jane Austen was having with these other parts of her society, other figures in her context. Now, when I make that connection, I grew up in the south of the United States, so I'm going to use the word highfalutin. Sometimes there's a kind of highfalutin way that we can draw things together and tie them with a bow. Am I being too highfalutin here, or am I seeing a parallel that you think can bear some weight? I'm Hey, I'm a trained scholar. Highfalutin is, that's my style, but it's not highfalutin. I mean, I love that you found what I would call the connective tissue. I mean, if you want something really highfalutin, you know, when I talk about connective tissue, 
We're talking about ligaments, which has the same, same root as religion, religio. Yeah, now that's highfalutin. So the point being is that it's the work of the religious imagination to actually find those connections, those ligaments, those connective tissue. And Jane is always quietly drawing our attention to those kinds of of challenges. I mean, even I've talked about the slave trade here, which was a, a global stain and remains. There is still the effects of slavery continue. But she's also drawing attention to issues in the stuff that we will treat instinctively as that thing that melts our heart. So take something like Pride and Prejudice. We focus on, oh, you know, it's Lizzie and Mr. Darcy and it's love and love. And I, that is a reading which moves me. I am in love with love. I love it. But she's also drawing attention to the ruthlessness of the reality. You know, there you are, you've got the Bennett daughters. And if one of them doesn't marry well, then they're in trouble. They're going to get thrown out of the manner in which they live as soon as the dad dies. This is ruthless economics. This is a world without a safety net. And she is trying to say to us, be aware of that stuff when we talk about the wonders of love. But she's also saying, let's be very realistic as well. This is why I think she's not a capital R romantic. When she's talking about love, she's talking about real stuff because, yes, to marry for love really matters in that kind of society. But let's also not lose sight of the fact that effectively people were contracting arranged marriages all the time in 18th and early 19th century upper class England. And that is not good. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She has a book of poetry out very recently called Eleanor Among the Saints. And today we're talking about another book that she's recently published called A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. Well, I want to stay with this for just a moment. And as I'm hearing you make these remarks about Jane Austen, I'm brought to mind for me another figure from English history from the late 17th, early 18th century, a Quaker by the name of John Woolman. And John Woolman was famous or perhaps infamous because he refused to wear clothing that was dyed with the colors that were coming across on the slave ships. And so he walked around in gray. He was thinking globally about how his actions were affecting and affected by the relationship with these people thousands of miles away. Now, I'm going to draw a parallel here between Woolman's sensibility about these invisible relationships and what you're telling us about Jane Austen, that she seemed to have a sensibility about the, and it comes back to this thing of ligaments and religio, of religion allowing us to see these invisible connections ethically, morally. What was it in your estimation that animated this ability of Jane Austen to have this kind of invisible sensibility with those that were suffering thousands of miles away or those that were suffering in communities that were rendered invisible by English society at the time? Gosh, 
I'm in, in the realm of speculation here, and this I'm just going to try and offer you my take and you know, to shoot from the hip here. The thing about Jane is that she was a curious mix of extreme privilege. I mean, she was part of the upper echelons of society, although, again, part of the brilliance of Austen's writing is that she brings out the subtle gradations and shows how those can be painful and agonizing if you're not one side of an invisible bar or not. Yes, she was privileged, but also she was someone who lived a life which, as a woman in that class, was remarkably constrained in a way that I come, my forebears, they all come from the sort of servant class. That is my background. And there were all sorts of constrictions on being a woman and being a servant, but at least you could get a job. If you were a working class woman in the Britain of the early 19th century, yes, you could work. You couldn't if you were Jane, unless you were a governess, unless you were a governess. So I think that somehow that that exquisite sense of being both liberated in one sense, and gosh, she had such a robust moral formation growing up in a rectory. Her dad was a vicar. Her brother was a vicar. They were both priests. It was robust. It was real. It was Christian. I think I gave her a strong moral compass. But she was also a woman in a world where it was really difficult to carve a path. And you know what? She almost married twice. And she knew that if she married there would be only one job available for her to have kids. And she didn't get married. And she wrote. And in that writing, she found a kind of freedom. But it was also a costly freedom because though she learned to live the life of the female novelist, which was a new thing in the 18th and 19th century, she never actually made very much money out of it. And she never you know, she never had the grand house to herself. So I think there was a great solidarity between her and those people who were on the edge and on the the margins. But at the heart of it, I think, was a deep, robust, pragmatic Christian faith. So as we're moving towards our next break, I want to pull out a couple of other pieces from your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, about Jane Austen, not only the person, but the kind of public figure. And we could talk about the Jane Austen industry. And some of the comments that you make in the book that really spoke to me were when you stepped back and you looked at how Jane Austen has moved from the 20th century into the 21st and the ways in which we are now rereading and reimagining the stories that Austen gave us. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about, we've said that within the text itself, if we read the pages of Austen's books, we get this connective tissue to these invisible relationships. But we also get these characters that are easily commodified, that easily fit into certain styles and sell certain lifestyles for us. So I wonder if you could talk to me and my listeners about how Austin, how you've observed Austin being packaged and repackaged for new audiences as we move from the 20th century to the 21st. Okay, thank you. I mean, firstly, to say that I don't offer profound sense here for that. I mean, it is a fact, you know, these things happen and it's the nature of anything that gets written 
the author loses control. But it is really weird to think that someone who was living in an entirely different moral universe in some ways, certainly social and cultural universe, has been turned packaged into sort of insta wisdom. I think the thing that's really come home to me are are two recent adaptations which show the commodification of characters. I mean, one is the 2007 adaptation of Mansfield Park, in which Fanny Price, who is amongst Jainites, not a fan favourite. You know, she's seen as a bit of, I don't know if you have the, this in the in US English, milksop. She's just, she seems a bit meh. There's just nothing going on there. And she's a bit drippy. But actually, she's a formidable consistent moral presence in that novel. I think she's extraordinary. But the 2007 adaptation turned her into this girl with sass. And they use this line in it. One of the lines in it is, you know, run as fast and as often as you choose, but do not faint. Something like that. And it's presented as if this is part of the Mansfield Park text, but it's actually from one of Austin's pieces of juvenilia. So there's just this need to say, take someone like Fanny, who is a morally consistent presence and turn her into this sassy 21st century girl. The most egregious (laughs) example, though, is Anne Elliott in the recent Netflix persuasion adaptation. I I hope I'm not going to now get sued by Netflix for throwing shade on their adaptation. The thing about Anne Elliot, and actually the brilliance of Anne Elliot, Persuasion is my favourite of Austen's novels. It's just extraordinary. But the thing about Anne Elliot is that she is a woman who has lost her pizzazz. She had that experience of first love with Captain Wentworth, and it all went wrong. And she's had to live for nearly a decade with regret. She's lost her way. And yet, inside her, there's this little flame of hope and love which perseveres. It's that, to quote Marvel, you know, what is grief if not love persevering? And it is that. She is grieving and love perseveres. In this Netflix adaptation, suddenly Anne Elliot becomes this, oh, looking at the camera, side eye. Everything is all about her as this woman in control. And it's, David, it's wrong, it's egregious, and it just needs to stop. And I just, I can't believe anyone loved that adaptation. Maybe I'm being just a bit, I don't know, annoying because I've read the novel, but it's rubbish. Don't watch it, listeners. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She has a new book of poetry out very recently called Eleanor Among the Saints. And today we're talking about another recently released book of hers called A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture, 
and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She's a familiar voice on BBC Radio and is a regular contributor to the program's Thought for the Day, pause for thought, and frequently presents on the daily service. She's a priest in the Church of England and serves as Archdeacon of Salford and Bolton and as a member of the Church's Theological Advisory Board. She has a book of poetry that has been published recently called Eleanor Among the Saints, and today we're talking about another recently published book of hers called A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days with Jane Austen. Well, in the first part of our conversation, we talked about the Christian practice of Lent, the 40 days of preparation moving to the Easter season, and we talked about Lent as a reorientation of our values back towards relationships and the centrality of love. And then in the segment, we talked about Jane Austen as a figure who presents us with what appear to be simple stories initially, but we find that there are deep and invisible and very complex connections when we dig deeper into the works of Jane Austen. And now I want to bring those two together because the structure of your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, is you take sections from the various writings of Jane Austen and you bring them into 40 Reflections for Lent. And the first thing that I want to ask you about is this comment that you made in the book when you were talking about the structure and the process where you said the process of bringing Jane Austen into conversation with Lent made you wish that Lent was longer. Help me understand that. Well, 40 days is just not long enough with Jane Austen. I say in the book that I could have done 40 days on Pride and Prejudice alone and probably 365 days on all of the six novels. And that's not even including the incomplete stuff and the letters and all the rest of it. The thing is that when I started out on this project, I really didn't know how it would go. I had this idea. I was excited by it. It was very much me. I get an idea. I thought, oh, oh, and then, and then I may have a conversation with someone else or with my publisher And they go, oh, that's exciting. And then I've got to do it. And as I got into it, I realized I was just leaving out so much because what I wanted to be able to do is work with the six main novels and offer enough for someone who is not either a Janeite or even someone who's read very much Jane Austen, offer them enough to be able to, in each section, to get the arc of the novel enough, but also to do that in such a way that that section illuminated Lenten themes and the Lenten themes illuminated the novel. And that, that, that was really a really difficult thing to do, actually. Well, and I want to ask you then about the process of taking this from the initial blush of excitement into a more sort of public process, at some point you had to talk to an editor about this idea. And I wonder what that conversation was like, if you're willing to share a little bit of that, because I think it's always fascinating for my listeners how an idea in somebody's head becomes a tangible object in the world. When you were pitching this, 
how did you describe it? Did the editor get it? And in the process of that conversation, did the project change in any substantive way? Thank you. Well, yes, yes, uh, certainly it changed substantially. Context. The idea came to me whilst listening to the radio one morning. I was listening to a classical radio station and they happened to play a piece of music from, I think it was the film version of Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 film version, which is, the music is in some ways the best thing about that adaptation. And it was for something like, I don't know, the 200th anniversary or 210th anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice. And I stood there with my morning coffee. I thought, Pride and Prejudice lent this is going to be incredible. I then sketched out on the side of one side of A4 a whole bunch of ideas about, oh, actually, this is how we could do each of those novels. And this is the thing. In terms of making my pitch, I presented it very much as each day would have a particular title. So it would be something like The Triumph of Love, An Excess of Pride. And it was very much trying to laser in on particular concepts around Lent. I had a conversation with my editor and she was incredibly enthusiastic about that. But the good news is, for me at least, is because I, I've written for this particular publisher before and a little mini plug here, I wrote a book for Advent based on the writings of Christina Rossetti a number of years ago. It was called In the Bleak Midwinter, Advent and Christmas with Christina Rossetti. And that that sold a lot of books, <laughs> relatively speaking. She went, yeah, I think I could work. And the, the way pub, modern publication system works is that you have to get it past the committee. And the committee can often be a bit tougher than an editor. But the committee were kind. But here's the thing. When I actually came to write it, I started writing it according to my original plan. And I found that I got a bit lost, really, because what I wanted to, what I was trying to do is was to shoehorn Austin into these 40-odd titles that I had. And it worked with one or two sections, but it should have been obvious to me as a literature scholar and a writer. You can't just make literature bend to your own will, or if you do, you're disrespecting it. You have to work with its architecture and its flavors and its inflections and its moods. And so I started again. I thought, let's actually see. I, I just, I reread all of the novels, of course, and made countless notes and start, I think, oh, I didn't expect that passage to speak to me in quite that way and work with Austin rather than trying to make her bend to my theological will. Which again, that's the sort of classic imperial tyrant's mode, isn't it? And it's actually, that is the anti-Christian position. I really love the phrase you just used. I didn't expect that passage to speak to me in that way and opening yourself up to surprise. And I'm especially grateful for the connection you just made to a kind of Christian anti-imperialist sort of relationship to the world. There's a lot of themes that are resonating through our conversation here, which prompts me to bring this back to a kind of original part of our discussion today. 
as you were in the process of letting the passages speak to you in these surprising ways, how did Lent change for you in this process? Gosh. Oh, my goodness. I'm, you can tell I'm just playing for time here because i that's such a great question. And it goes so deep. I guess... For me, Lent became even more relational and even less transactional. What do I mean by that? Because that sounds very clever, doesn't it? But it's not very grounded. The thing about Austin is this, is that in some ways, and it's part of her genius, the characters on the page can feel as real as actual flesh and blood human relationships. They're not just characters. They're not just placeholders for ideas and concepts. And that particularly becomes the case, the more mature her writing becomes. And so going back to the novels and trusting the novels, knowing them well, but trusting the novels, I came to... And a classic example of this is Mr. Collins, you know, the awful, unctuous clergyman in Pride and Prejudice. And there is no two ways about it. He is, to use a phrase of Jane's, he is not a sensible man. He is not a sensible man. But my relationship changed with him by letting him be himself rather than my presumptions about him or thinking, oh, he'll be great, won't he, as an example of a prideful, supercilious idiot. And, you know, actually, I came away thinking, oh, he's a human being like each of us. And to use prayer book language, deserves charity, deserveth charity too. And that's, there's a gentling, therefore. There's, There's a kind of gentling of Lent for me through letting Jane, lead me. This is so powerful for me. I love this phrase, gentling, that you've introduced into our conversation. But I also don't want to lose sight of what you said immediately before it, this character letting him be himself rather than my presumptions about him. And through our conversation, we've talked about identity, we've talked about your journey of identity, we've talked about the ways in which neoliberalism or a certain type of imperial Christianity can look at people and say, your story doesn't matter, the story I have about you is the important story. You must live in this story that I'm giving you, not the story that you have. And in this moment with this character, I'm hearing you saying that you finally allowed yourself to let him be himself instead of what you expected him to be. And I think that there's that there's a lesson in that for us about Lent, about reading, and about simply being humble with each other. Now, again, I'm going to ask you, am I getting too highfalutin here in drawing these connections? D- do you think that these parallels bear weight? If they do, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. Absolutely, they bear, bear weight. And to come back to Collins, we need to accept that he is a comedy character. This is part of the wonderful thing about Austin is that she's multi-layered, that we can we do laugh at him. Again, another line of Austin, what do we live for except to make sport of our neighbours and let them make sport of us in turn? There is something about 
laughing at one another. And that's a very Brit slash English thing to do. But by offering attention to Collins, or indeed any number of other characters, it means that they they look back at us. That's a very highfalutin thing to say. They the novel reads us. You know, it's a relational matter. But attention is at the heart of the matter, David. This is one of those key things in spiritual direction for me and in this sense of us being pilgrims or disciples is that we are called to pay attention. And that is one of the deepest of Lenten practices. When we pay attention, whether it's paying attention to a character in a novel or to our neighbour on the street or indeed to someone that we dislike intensely, we are more likely to be humbled and humble and see ourselves more clearly, I think. God is, because God is giving us such profound attention as community and as persons. And we don't recognize that. And that's not in a, oh, look at me, self-indulgent way, but it's it's the joy, it's the, the freedom that we have is to say, oh my goodness, that I am, that I live, that I breathe. And this is all being sustained by the living God. That is liberating. But, you know, what are we called to do in return? To give that generous, gracious attention. There's a little side note on that sidebar. There are people for whom I do really struggle to do that, some of our political leaders. (laughs) And I have to say, Lord, over to you on that one, (laughs) because I ain't got the grace to be generous. But you hear my general point. Well, and I really appreciate this. And as we're drawing to the close of our conversation, here's what I hear you saying. And I'd love to see if I've got this right. So Lent is an opportunity for us to slow down and to shrug off the narratives that our society gives us about who we should be that are out of sync with the authenticity of who we are and who those around us are. And it's an opportunity to pause and begin to pay more careful attention And what I see you doing in your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, is you take this wonderful treasure trove of books from Jane Austen, and you say, I know you may be unfamiliar with this, or you may be very familiar with this, but just take a moment and look again. And look with me, there's something interesting here you may not have seen. And in the process of doing that, you're inviting readers not only to look again at Austin, but to look again at their relationships, to look again at their own lives, and to prepare themselves in that looking again. Now, as I say this back to you, does that feel like I've understood the sort of theme of this, the way that you've brought it together, or would you say it in a different way? Well, what you've said is so good, David, that even if it didn't capture what I'd said, I would say it did. It's absolutely beautiful and exquisite and brilliant. What I would want to add two things. And it's always dangerous, isn't it, to say, I've got two things to say, because then you'll think of a third one and it becomes a Monty Python sketch. So the first thing is to say, I can think of no better companion, actually, for a Lenten pilgrimage than Jane's novels, because she is the supreme novelist of attention. It is all about details and noticing and being the kind of person who is 
maybe sometimes the centre of attention, but actually more often than not, sat in the corner of the room, noticing what is going on and the significance of a smile or of a spiteful word or a misplaced word. She is a novelist of attention. And in reading her novels in Lent, she calls us deeper into attention. The second thing I want to say is that this is not attention for attention's sake, although I can see for some that, you know, that is really important. Nor is it a kind of utilitarian attention. It's not just about, oh, well, if I do this, then I will get here. It is the attention which we're called to by the God who wants us to have the abundance of life, but the God who also wants us to reckon with reality. And Lent is precisely a precursor to Holy Week and Easter, because Holy Week and Easter are those peak moments of reality about who God is and about who we are as a species and as persons, that we are precisely the kind of creatures who long to love, who long to see justice and change as those disciples did as they walked into Jerusalem waving palm branches, but we are also precisely the kind of creatures who betray one another, who betray love, who let our friends down, who go so far as to crucify love itself and actually destroy goodness and will use imperial means of torture, such as a cross, despite ourselves, to achieve terrible ends. But the most wonderful reality of all is that God walks that path in Christ, embraces it, And then, to our utter shock, comes back to us in the Garden of Resurrection. Not vowing revenge, as a tyrant would, but offering those people who betrayed love and failed in our attention a way to begin again and live the life we're called to in deep truth. Well, Dr. Rachel Mann, I just want to say how grateful I am. I came into the reading of your book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, knowing very little about Jane Austen, but knowing that I Lent was not my favorite season. And you gave me fresh eyes to look at both Lent as a practice, but also you've now opened up for me this wonderful treasure trove of the writings of Jane Austen, and I will return to it thanks to your guidance. I just want to express my gratitude on behalf of my listeners for the work and thought that you put into this book, but thank you especially for the time you took today to talk with us about it. It's an absolute privilege, David, and may you be mightily blessed during that season of Lent.
Amen. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rachel Mann. She's a widely published poet, novelist, music critic, and theologian. She's a familiar voice on many BBC radio programs. She's a priest in the Church of England, and she serves as Archdeacon of Salford and Bolton and as a member of the Church's Theological Advisory Board. She has a book of poetry that was recently published called Eleanor Among the Saints, and today we've been talking about another recent book, A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 40 Days. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.